Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January the 14th, 2015, and this is episode 1499 of the Survival Podcast. Yes, 1499. We have kind of a landmark episode tomorrow. 1500. But today's 1499. What are we going to talk about today? Getting ready for spring. Am I an idiot? Seriously? Have you seen what it's like outside right now? Hold on. We'll get to that in just a bit. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, jmbullion.com. Look, silver and gold should be part of your wealth investment strategy. Period. The end over infinity. You absolutely should save silver and gold. I'm not saying get rid of all your money, all your cash, and go 100% in. I think that's stupid advice. And I think the people that give you that advice profit from it, and that's the only reason they give it to you, because you have to be a flipping idiot in this market to go 100% all in on any investment. Silver and gold are not magic. They're not something super, uber special, but they are incredibly, historically accurate stores of value. And sooner or later, they generally tell the truth about the market. And the truth about the market is simple. The plan for the dollar is to make it worth less tomorrow than it is today and do it forever. If you ask the chairman of the Federal Reserve, that's what they tell you. That is the plan, and they're pretty good at it. They're pretty daggone good at it. The dollar has lost about 98% of its value since 1913 when the Fed took over. 98%. Silver and gold are worth today, when it comes to real hard goods, pretty much what they were worth about the same time. Put it to you this way. In the 1930s, you could go buy a gallon of gasoline for a quarter. And right now, with gas prices having come down like they have, if you have a 1930s quarter that's made out of silver, guess what you can buy with it? More than a gallon of gas. Just saying. Anyway, so it just makes sense to insure your wealth. But where do I get my silver and gold when I'm buying it? JM Bullion, great pricing, professional, quality service from a small business that really cares about you with better pricing than Monix and Atmex and discounts on larger purchases for the members of the Support Brigade. And did I mention free shipping on all orders? Yep, it's a minimum order of $100. Bucks. But if you're buying silver and gold, folks, don't buy less than $100 bucks worth of it online. If you want to buy two coins, go down to the coin shop. You don't buy, The shipping kills you. So you go to JM Bullion when you want to make that investment of $100 or more, and you get all your stuff shipped for free. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my source for something else I consider golden, herbs. Um, I deal with a lot of pain in my shoulder and my back from previous injuries and just from the work I do. And the main thing that I've used to, to mitigate that is turmeric uh, in a, a blend that's available from Western Botanicals. And I know when I forget to take it because the pain and the annoyances and stuff come back. And this is just an herb. And it works better for me than Tylenol or Advil. It takes a little longer, but it works better. It's safe and gentle, and it's just one example of the things that are available from Western Botanicals. Where if it's herbal and legal in the U.S., they have it. You'll find it there. You'll also find real people that really care about you. Pick up the phone and call them if you need help. They'll help you make the right decisions for yourself. You can learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Remember, they have an incredible program. It's called their Premium Membership Program, where once you join, it's 50 bucks a year, and you get 25% off all orders. If you use a lot of herbals like I do, that more than pays for itself. 
But guess what? If you're a member of my support brigade, they give it to you for free. Makes your first year of MSB free. That's really the way you can look at it. They're great supporters of the show. Uh, so check them out today. Two sponsors again, Jam Bullion, Western Botanicals. And on the MSB, do consider joining the member support brigade. How'd you like to get discounts like that? 25% off everything from Western Botanicals. Come a member of the support brigade and you can. How'd you like to get, you know, money off any order over $300 from Jam Bullion? Become a member of the support brigade and you can. How'd you like a lifetime membership to the Safe Castle Discount Club? Join the member support brigade and you get that. And it's so affordable to become an MSB member. It's $50 a year. That's 20 cents an episode. You want to pay monthly? Five bucks. Think this show's worth five bucks a month? Consider joining. Try it out. Check it out. If it seems like it's worth the value, keep it. If you want the discount, cancel your membership. And after it expires, renew at a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount TSPC in the subject line, and I will get back to you with a discount code again. Do that before, not after you join. Now let us take a look at the year that was the episode. Uh, $14.99, what was going on? We had Swiss independence and opportunity, uh, for one thing. We had the Second Italian War. And the motivational power of defeat. That sounds interesting, it is, but if you want to read about the motivational power of defeat from Alex Shrugged on the TSP Wiki, you'll have to go to the TSPWiki.com yourself. I'm going to read about Swiss independence. The cantons of the old Swiss Confederation, which will one day be called Switzerland, have refused to pay their taxes to the House of Habsburg. Out comes the pikes, the swords, and the guns. The Swiss war is on. The Habsburgs appeal to the Swabian League to put down the rebellion. Since the League's purpose is to bring stability to that region, it seems like a good idea. Unfortunately, the charismatic leader of the League died a few years ago, and no single leader has arisen yet amongst the city members. For uh, modern reference, this would be like NATO without the USA to push the member states into action. It would be mushy, but mushy has its virtues. The Swiss already have a reputation for disciplined and relentless fighting. Some people will surrender when they see them coming. They have won their independence from the Habsburgs and are now free to pursue other interests, like selling their frighteningly efficient military services to the French in the Second Italian War and to the Pope. The actual, this is my take by Alex Shrug, the actual name of the war depends on who you ask. Most people call it the Swabian War, which is a reference to the Swabian League of Cities, a mutual defense treaty with a general goal of stability in a region called Swabia. For orientation, it's a region south of Germany and just north of Switzerland. Today, Lake Constance in the, on the Rhine is also known as the Swabian Sea. I prefer to call, call this conflict the Swiss War, which is what most Germans called it. It was a mild insult, like calling all Mexicans, Hondurans, Guatemalans, and Panamanians just Mexicans. And it turns out the name Swiss sticks. Eventually, the cantons of the old Swiss Confederation will be called Switzerland, although they won't be a unified government called Switzerland until the 1800s. It's complicated, but there is a reason that Switzerland is often the neutral ground of a modern era. I think we think of Switzerland as an old country. been around for a long time, and its history is old. But its actual foundation as a nation with its current borders is really quite current, as current as the United States, actually. Uh, it's actually more current than the United States, uh, at least the original United States, I guess you would say. Anyway, uh, I have a different take on this, as you might imagine. Uh, the one line that hit me the most, <laughs> out come the pikes, the swords, and the guns. What does government do when it doesn't get what it wants and what it demands? It uses the threat of violence 
at the point of a gun or a sword. And if you study history, you start to realize there's no rational objection to that statement. That government can do nothing without the threat of violence. Government simply is the threat of violence, the threat of the use of force. And it's why, no matter what your views on government are, you should be of the mindset that it should be absolutely as small as possible. As small as possible to fulfill whatever role you think it needs to fulfill. You might think the role is bigger than the role I see. That's fine. We can have that difference of opinion. But how big does a government need to be to meet the basic roles of, that it should serve in society, which is basically the preservation of individual liberty as far as I'm concerned? That's a choice for you yourself to make. But when you start examining the history of what government does, It gets real easy to real fast believe it needs to be a lot less uh, influential in the lives of individuals. It's it's just really organized stuff, folks. It really is. Some would call it a necessary evil. I'd say that doesn't make it any less evil. My take by Jack Spierko. And with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, getting ready for spring. And here's what I wrote on the blog, a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, proving that I can laugh at myself. Spring? Did that moron Jack say spring? Has he gone daft? Doesn't he know that it's below zero in much of the nation? Hasn't he seen the big white piles of global warming all over the country? Spring? Really? This moron speaks of spring. Pipes are frozen and broken. The dog won't go out to pee. And another Arctic blast is ascending upon us from Canada. And this dolt speaks of chirping birds and budding trees? Yeah, spring's coming. Uh, and I have a picture right above that, you know, little pluck at myself there of the four seasons. You know, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And when you think about it that way, you start to realize something. There's 12 months in a year. A season is three months. It's 90 days. 90 days. Now, I know for some of you, real spring doesn't get to you on March 21st just because the calendar says. And even here, we... We're not in the type of thing that we usually think of as spring by March 21st. Not everything's all beautiful and green, and we're getting there. Uh, but I remember living in Pennsylvania, and mid-March is still pretty daggone cold. And when somebody tells you it's the first day of spring, you want to punch them in the head. But the truth is, March 21st is a turning point. And if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, it is spring, and you do see a difference. It might still get cold out, but it's not the same. And And from that point forward... The days get longer and longer and longer, all the way up to the summer solstice, June 21st. So, spring's not that far away on December 21st. It's only 90 days, but it's not December 21st, guys. It's January 14th. Um, so, the first day of spring being officially March 21st, that's the spring equinox. Today is January 15th, which means that means we only have 67 days. 67 days. Until spring is officially here. I want to put that in perspective for you. Remember how we just had like Christmas and the holidays and Thanksgiving and all that stuff? Do you remember not so long ago we had this thing where the kids went out with bags and said trick or treat and got candy? Halloween. Halloween is kind of like the, the you know, last day of March or last day of March, last day of October. And you kind of, you go from October to November, you're into November, you're into that holiday season. You start thinking about Thanksgiving, they start putting the, the turkeys out in the freezers, and, and it kind of all goes through, right, from that point forward. You know, the kids are getting excited, it's talking about meeting Santa Claus and all that stuff, and then we have, you know, downtime, family time, two big American holidays, 
A lot of other religious celebrations like Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, depending on your faith, uh, or what have you, and lots of other stuff there. And that's, that's all great. But do you realize how fast that goes? Like from, think about it again. Just, it was just Halloween, then it was Thanksgiving, then it was Christmas, and then we were in the new year. Holy, and it just seems to go like downhill into winter, high speed. Um, do you know how long that is? 76 days. It's 76 days from Thanksgiving to Christmas. And we're looking at 67 days, or I'm sorry, from, from Halloween to Christmas. So we're looking at 67 days till the official start of spring. So it is time to start thinking about it because there's so many things that you want to be prepared to do as the season turns as a homesteader that if you don't start thinking about now, it sneaks up on you and so much doesn't get done. So yesterday when I put out a thing and said I lost an interview this week, and I found out today that my one interview this week is tomorrow afternoon. I have to make up a bunch of shows this week because I lost an interview, and my second interview was scheduled for Thursday afternoon. So I have to come up with more subjects. So I put out this post on Facebook and said, what do you want to hear about? And there was like a thousand responses to it. It was really like a couple hundred. Great ideas, and one was getting ready for spring, and I thought that's that's a good one. It was kind of in my mind already, so I decided to add that this week. And I think that really the biggest thing you have to realize about right now, in this cold weather, right, and it is like you do what you have to do on your homestead during this time of year, but you never really, really look forward to it unless you live like south of Houston or in South Florida or something like that. It's cold. It's windy. It rains. You got to keep everything from freezing up. I mean. It is a, ugh. But it also gives you a lot more time, downtime, inside time than you usually have. And there's not a lot to be done other than making sure you take care of livestock if you have them. But when it comes to your plants and all, uh, you might be doing some grafting this time of year if you're into that or what have you. But otherwise, everything's asleep. Everything's asleep. Everything's resting. People are resting. Days are short, etc. And that time gives you time to research, to read, take in some academia, to study, and to reflect, and to plan. And I think this is the best time of the year to reflect on the past and plan for the future. A lot of us, we get into pretty wintry conditions by Thanksgiving to Christmas time, you know. Uh, but we're not, we don't have the downtime because we're getting ready for the holidays. Uh, many of us are out in the fields hunting during that time of year. You're doing the final bring-in of food from the gardens and preserving of food and getting ready for big meals and all this stuff. And it comes up to New Year's, which, by the way, to me, becomes less and less impactful in my life every year. I think this year we went to bed at 10.30 on New Year's Eve. We didn't even watch the New York City uh, New Year's thing. We just went to bed because we didn't really care. Um, but, you know, that kind of hits, and it's like, okay, now it's a new year, you get back to work, and you just kind of have this pause for a couple months. And making the best use of it, I think, is about research, learning, planning. Those are the things I like to do this time of year. And what I always want to do is say, okay, it's 2015 now, what happened in 2014? And I won't go through that too much with you guys because I did a show recently where I talked about all the things we did last year, uh, kind of an end-of-the-year roundup of all the things that we put in. But you sit down and you think about that, and you say to yourself, what worked and what didn't? What gave me exactly what I expected? What completely sucked? And 
what sort of kind of work that needs to be fine-tuned. And that starts to get you into the planning process right away. And when you do that, you start to realize something. Sometimes we're hard on ourselves as homesteaders, and you think, man, I didn't get enough done. Because you look around, and there's always things you want to do next, and that makes it feel like you're not accomplishing much. When you do that review, that annual review, you're like, I did this, I did that, I did this, and oh, wow, I got all these things done. And it, it gives you a little bit of motivation at a time where you know, cabin fever is setting in and things like that. But it also really sets the stage for you for the next process, which is making of a list of everything you want to do in the coming year. Everything you want to do. From the far out and wild to the, to the absolutely necessary to the downright practical, from the cheap to expensive and everything in between. Just this giant laundry list with no concern for whether or not it's practical or possible when you make the list. That's how I think you should make the list. I'm, I'm not really very far in this process yet. I'm just getting started. Dorothy and I are going to talk quite a bit, uh, this weekend, honestly, about our plans for, for the coming year. And we're just now starting to assemble the list. So I'm, I'm actually talking about this as we're doing that, not after we've completed it. Um, but everything. And I think it makes sense to, you know, open a new note on your smartphone, your iPhone or whatever, or have a physical paper or whatever. And whatever you think of something as you're walking around, go, oh, yeah, I need to do that. Just put it on the list. Just put it up. Just don't worry about it. It's going to be expensive. I don't care. Put it on the list. Right? It's so easy. I'll just get it done without even thinking about that one. No, put it on the list. Everything goes on the list. Everything. And when you get done with that list, you got to look at it. And there's three areas that I try to rate my lists. I, I, I rate them on want, how much do I want this, needs, how much is this necessary to my other plans, to my homestead, to my long-term security, whatever. What, what is its need factor? What is its need value? And what does it cost? What's its expense cost, right? Now, I like to actually take all of it once I get the list refined and come up with good words to explain every item on that list where when I read it, I won't go, what was I talking about there? So I get that list and I just plug it all into Excel. Right there, I don't worry about what order it goes in. It goes down in the A column. And then I just put, you know, task for the, the, the A1 cell in Excel. And then the B1 cell... I put want, and I rate, I just go through it off the top of my head, and I go rate it one to four. One, I really, 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 really want to do this. I mean, I want it like a kid wants that first BB gun for Christmas that his mom says he's going to shoot his eye out with. I will scheme to get this done. I want this. This is very, very high on my want factor. Two, I want this bad enough, I'm probably going to figure out how to make it happen this year. It's kind of where I'm at with that. Three, I'd like this, and if I can do it this year, I want to, and it would be really great if I could. Four, I'd like this, but if it doesn't happen this year, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. And you can, we talk about what to do later when you're trying to figure out how to prioritize the priorities in there, but you just go through with that. Then you go to your needs, and you do the same thing, one to four. Rating a need a one means if I don't do this this year, there's a significant consequence to me, either in expense or lost time, or if I'm establishing a business on my farmstead or other systems on my farmstead, if I don't do it, it impedes my progress significantly or costs me time or money significantly or prevents me from establishing something that's necessary, right? 
or something's going to die if I don't do this, right? If I have beds that need to be mulched, and I don't mulch them before the scorching summer comes, and they're going to dry out and die, that's a one, just as an example, all right? A two on the needs list is, it's not good if this doesn't get done. I won't lose a lot of money or anything. It might set back a timetable or two. Um, I'm really not going to be happy about it, but when I really am pushed, if it was between an item I've already related a one and this type of an item, I would go with the one first, right? It's that, I really want this, but, and I need this, but I don't absolutely need it, right? Three is, it'd be really good for all of the other things in, in, in my planning if this was done this year. It would be really, really, really good, okay? And a four is, it, this is absolutely something that is necessary at some point, but it may not really be necessary this year at all. Or it may not even really be necessary. You could even move your, your need factor to fives, right? You could go to five, and a five is, this is not necessary. This is only a want, all right? Then you go to your cost. Well, the cost is simple. Off the top of your head, how much you think it's going to cost, add 10% to that number and plug that number in. So if you think it's going to cost you 100 bucks to do, put in $110. Unless you've already done it before, you already have a bill of materials, and you already know it's going to be 100 bucks, right? So you go through, that's going to be 100 bucks. it's going to be 50 that's going to be $500, that's a big project, that's a $2,000 project, that's 5 bucks. that's cheap, that's no money at all, zero, what have you. So now you've got that done. And uh, as, you're, as you're doing this, right, um, make sure that occasionally you stop and save your work. I'll tell you an old uh, humorous little story to drive that point home. I'm not a religious person. You may be. Either way, this should be not offensive to you unless there's something wrong with you mentally. Anyway, it's, uh, it's called the Jesus and Satan Computer Contest. Jesus and Satan were having an ongoing argument about who was better on his computer. They had been going at it for days, and God was tired of hearing all the bickering. Finally, God said, cool it. I'm going to set up a test that will run for two hours, and I'll judge who does a better job. So down Satan and Jesus sat at the keyboards and typed away. They moused, they did spreadsheets, they wrote reports, they sent faxes, they sent email. They sent out email with attachments, they downloaded, they did some genealogy reports, they made cards, they did every known job. But ten minutes before the time was up, lightning suddenly flashed across the sky. Thunder rolled and the rain pounded and of course the electricity went off. Satan stared at his blank screen and screamed every curse word known in the underworld. Jesus just sighed. The electricity finally flickered back on, and each of them restarted their computers. Satan started searching frantically and screaming, It's gone! It's all gone! I lost everything when the power went out! Meanwhile, Jesus quietly started printing out all his files from the past two hours. Satan observed this and became irate. Wait, he cheated! How do you do it? God shrugged and said, Jesus saves. So save your work on your computers. Anyway, <laughs> just a little side story there. I, when I was telling you that, I just remembered that from an email chain back in the 90s. That's how old that thing is. Anyway, so um, I guess that was before you had programs that you know did auto-saves once every 15 minutes as well. Anyway, so you know, make sure you save your work so you don't lose this. Because once you have this done, you can always add more things. When you find something you didn't think of on the list, put it in there and plug in the values. 
And then the beauty of this is using Excel, and I'm not big on tech for organization. I think you can over-tech your organization. But this is so simple and so valuable, and it makes you just be honest with yourself about wants, needs, and costs. All you have to do then is click a row in Excel and sort ascending. You know, your lowest number goes first, and you sort everything from your want list. And you look at all your wants. And you go in there, And you compare them, just like the eyeglass thing where the guy goes, better or better, you know, A or B, A or B. You just look at two and go, which one do I really want more? I want this one more, okay? Then I'm going to say that this is a 1.0 and this is a 1.1. And I look at the next one and go, what do, I, what do I want that more? And I go, okay, that's a, I, a or B, just flat out A or B, uh, Okay, I'm going to call that, I'm going to say I want those other two even more. That's a 1.2. The next one I'm going to go, I want that more. And I'm just going to keep changing my decimals. The list can only be so long. If you have way too many ones, you're not being honest. Okay, you got to push some stuff to twos. But in the end, if you go, these two things really are a tie, fine, no problem. Give them both a 1.1 or 1.3, wherever they fall in the spectrum. All right? Go to your twos. Do the same thing. Go to your threes. Do the same thing. Sometimes what you'll find yourself doing is taking a two and turning it into a three. When you start analyzing it that way. This is really a three, so you change it to a three. You go to your threes. Sometimes threes become fours. Sometimes fours become threes. But you've just worked that out. So you broke it down into a single category. And then you broke it down to a single rating, one. And then you take the ones and you go through them. And the twos and you go on. So you know what you do next. You go to the needs. You evaluate them as a need. So I've got my list of one needs And I break them into decimals. I give them a 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. Sometimes I don't really have to go A, B, A, B right away. I just do it off the top of my head. That's a 1.1. That's a 1.3. That's a 1. Just do it like that. Doesn't matter if they're all consecutive or whatever. And in the end, if you have stuff that's not quite clear anymore, you go back through them and go, okay, I'm going to change that to a 1.1. That's tied with a 1.1. And you do that. Yeah? Then you know what you do. You're done. Really. Because all you got left is price, right? So now you can sort from the most expensive to the least expensive or the least expensive to the most expensive. You can sort from the one you want the most to the one you want the least and vice versa. The one you need the most and the one you, you need the least. And then you have a budget of what you're willing to spend this year and you have to make decisions based on those three criteria. But all of a sudden, this massive glob of crap Where you're, you're just like, I don't know what to do first, just became very organized. And what I just said to do, it might take you a couple weeks to make your initial list. If you're tough on yourself though, and you just start plugging in numbers, one, two, four, one, and you, and you just give the, the price estimate, just do it. Don't sit there and go, well, I gotta look all this stuff up. If you make a really, hard guess, you're going to be close, at least enough that you can start deciding, okay, this looks like a project, I said the budget on is $250, let me sanity check that now, and if you go out and you research, you go, I'm going to have to put $350 in this, just change the number, and you can continuously evaluate it throughout the entire year. And every time something comes up that needs to be done, you can stick it in your list, and you'll find a lot of times when things come up on the fly like that, they immediately become a one. The pump broke. I gotta fix it. Don't even need to put that one on the list. I gotta go do it now. Okay, fine. Um, I'd like to put a more efficient pump in. 
okay, it's probably a one, and let's put it in the list, and let's sort it, and let's figure out when we're going to get it done. All right? So you've got that. So basically this is going into almost a binary mode. By the end of this list, with your time budget and your money budget, you're going to end up with a value for each one you could express in another column, one yes, zero no. In other words, it's getting done this year, or no, it's not. And when you get something that you end up definitively deciding this has to be deferred, drop in a new spreadsheet and leave it for next year. Just get it out of your face. And if you get everything done on your list and you end up with some extra time and money, go pull that list forward. Just get it out of your face, though, so you don't worry about it anymore. You stop stressing about it, right? You just go, that's not going to happen this year, so I don't need to worry about the fact that it's not going to happen anymore. Circle of influence, circle of concern comes back to us once again. And then you have to start taking in some considerations, you know, when we start looking at it from a homesteader view vantage point. Um, with plantings, you got to look at your average last frost dates. Some dormant plants are actually best planted before your last frost date. You want to get them in a month before, some dormant trees and bushes. It's better to put them in the ground when you're still having frost and let them bud out in the ground and to have them budding out in a bucket and then put in the ground in the spring. You get higher survival. With certain things, it's just not an option. With certain things, hey, maybe I'm going to put tomatoes in the beds, then cover the beds with frost protection, and they're going to get to a certain size before it's not practical to put that protection on them anymore. So now I need to time it so that when they're big enough that it's hard to protect them any longer with whatever means of protection I have, by then we've gotten past the frost date. So we have to think about that. You know, what are you planning is a big part of that. If you're planning an annual, it's, it's almost always critical with the exception of coal crops and leaf crops that you plant it after the frost date. If you're planting perennials, you could be planting them now, honestly. Some dormant plants, if you can get your hands on bare root trees, if you stay on the ground right now, not a problem. Mulch it well to protect the roots and go on about your business. It's a perennial tree that's designed to go dormant in winter like it is, doesn't care. Doesn't care. Sometimes some of those trees you can have losses, though, if you have too much of an intense frost and that tree's not protected enough. So you have to balance it with what you're planting, where you're planting it, how severe your winter is, how much of your winter's left. Um, you also have to ask yourself another question. When does heat start to become a problem? And I break down the heat where it's a problem to three things. When is it a problem for man? It's too hot for you to want to do that thing. And how long does it stay too hot? When, how long till fall comes? Because some of your stuff may get deferred to fall. And then you need to make sure that you hit the fall window before you're in the winter again if it's something that has to be done this year. Right? And there's usually a point in summer where you know, it's 105 degrees today. I don't want to do a major outdoor construction project. Some people don't mind working in the heat like that. So you have to know your own tolerances, not, well, I'll do it if I need to. Do you really want to do it at that point? So when does the heat become a problem for you in getting something done? The next is, when is it a problem for animals? So, for instance, I do not want to start in Texas a run of broiler chickens on July 15th. They're going to be in the brooder till about the first week of August, then they're going to go outside And they're going to be young birds trying to adapt to and deal with, while they're growing very, very quickly, 100 plus degree days. I don't want to do it. If I put them out in the middle of September, 
I have to look at when they're going to come to slaughter. So I have to time all of these things based on starting and stopping and weather. You know, I really don't want to have to butcher a hundred chickens the week of Thanksgiving. I got too much else going on. I really don't want to do it much later than that, though, because then I'm out in the cold dealing with pluckers and scalders and all this stuff in the cold and water freezing up and, and what have you. But I don't want to do it in the massive high heat of, of, of the summer either unless I'm doing it for production and I have to accept that. If I'm doing one run a year, I might as well time it in a beautiful window where I have some time for the slaughter, the animals have a, a good temperature, and that number of start date and end date will, will shift based on where you're at. You know, we ran chickens in West Virginia uh, starting in August this year, and it worked out great. We had them for the fall festival. They were at like eight weeks old. But the weather was much more mild there than it was here. If I had done that here, especially with Cornish crosses, they'd been panting and falling over and dying. So that's a huge part of, of, of figuring things out is when does the heat become a problem for man and beast and plant? Because some of the plants that you plant, you want established to a certain degree before the main heat moves in. Or you have to take precautions to deal with the heat and heat-related losses with some of your perennials. Um, and then the next thing you have to look at with all of this type of homestead planting, are you going to stay or are you going to go? Is this like a forever home? Or a foreseeable forever home? Is there any way in which this is your forever home? Is this a long-term residence? Is this a place you're going to be for a decade or more? Or as far, you know, you can't say that with certainty, but for, as far as you know, you don't really have this major plan to get out. Or do you know within two to three years you're leaving? Because that'll change your priority list. If you're leaving within two to three years, you got to put your priorities in two places and two places only with this type of stuff. One, learning. Your education, what's the educational value? And two, what is the value of the property at the planned time of departure for the next person buying the property? Something that's not really going to be complete and not really be understood at sale time, you don't want to do it. It starts eliminating buyers. So you have to plan that way too. Um, and with that, I want to go into some of our current things on our ever-expanding and growing list. Uh, one of my most important things, this is a one for want and a one for need to meet our goals this year, is to finish our misting system and tree grow beds up. We have the timer out there. I need to run some additional water lines and stuff. The boxes are built. Uh, I need to put in some wind protection, some protection from the geese and ducks getting in there and eating all my cuttings and all, but it's not really a lot of work. right? So another thing you could put in your spreadsheet is... Number of days required for the project. How many days or how many hours do you foresee this project taking? Right, that's another thing. You could you could keep adding columns to the spreadsheet. You can make it as complex as you want. How much help do you need? A zero being none. One meaning a partner. Two meaning significant help. Three meaning you're going to have to hire somebody to do part of it. Right. You can you can do it however you like. Um, but you know when I look at the misting system, I don't need a lot of help. Everything's ready to go. It's probably, if I'll give myself one day to work on it, I can do it in one day. So this is going to go, and it needs to be in place to start making cuttings this late spring. So it's a very high priority for me. Um, planting new long-term cover crops. I've done a lot with annual cover cropping up till now. Uh, I usually end up with a lot of bare space by this time of year, which I, I have again. Uh, it's been mainly because I've lacked irrigation. 
Uh, I am currently installing irrigation, which is also on my list in all of the areas that I need to be managed cover crop areas. So this year, as that irrigation goes in and as the temperature gets right, I'm going to very heavy seedings with mixed clovers, perennial grasses, chicory, and, and things like that that are going to be more resilient to continue to come back year after year. We've done enough with priming the ground with annuals now. And, and what we actually had last year was such a, uh, a success using and trying out sorghum and sunflower in our food forest that since they were annuals, as soon as the cold hit, you realize they had shaded out most of the undergrowth. So they did their job through the summer by helping to keep the tree roots cool. But when we chopped and dropped them, there wasn't a lot underneath them. And uh, due to the fact that we ran a workshop, we held off on doing some of the stuff we should have done, like immediately seed and remulch. And it just didn't seem to make sense when we were going to go in and plant another 200 plants. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. So we need to move toward that perennial-based uh, cover cropping now. Uh, we also have to install the zone-based in, in, uh, irrigation. So I've got one main uh, branch of that done. I've got two more in the food forest. Each of those two will consist of two zones for one and three another. It takes me about a full day of work to hand dig and install one zone. So that's five days of work over there. And I have no way around the fact that that's five days of work. That's what it is. I also have a similar situation that I think I'll be able to move much faster on because of how deep the soil's been built in my zone two food forest uh, that I want to put that we did on the hugel beds. I want to put irrigation in there. It just works better that way, especially with ducks grazing the undergrowth. Uh, the more I can grow for them to eat, the less I have to feed them. And when I do that, I also want to cover those those beds with another layer of compost and plant a lot of clover. And there's a lot of Bermuda grass grows down there. It's not really a problem. I don't want people to freak out about it. Um, trees do just fine with grass around them. It's Unless you're trying to maximize production in an orchard, grass and trees grow together in nature. Uh, the more you can polyculture the mix in there, though, the better. So I want to get a lot of clover and chicory and things like that into that that area down there and get that irrigation in. It goes a little bit lower on the need factor because I'm doing the in-ground irrigation in that area more for convenience. That area is actually really easy to water without going to the in-ground in uh, irrigation. Um, I, I can do that with a few sprinklers and a couple valves. Really easy. And it doesn't need anywhere near the amount of irrigation other places do because of the hugel effect and because it's going into its third season with it now. So it's just a little kickstarter. It's a little a little shove in the right direction. So its need factor is lower. Now getting the compost down and the additional cover crop mix in, that's a much higher thing for that area. Um, in my uh, urban food forest, I need to get that irrigation in. That's pretty high. It's just going to be so much easier to do. That's going to become a very intensively managed system this year. It's going to expand a lot. It's going to be constantly mulched. Um, there's some other things that need to be done there that are on this priorities list, but that's going to become the showcase it's designed to be this year. So getting that irrigation in is essential so that I, I can do the rest of the things I want to do without worrying about disturbing it when I start digging water pipes in the ground. And it won't take that long. I estimate I have two days of work to irrigate that whole section. So because it's low hours, it goes up. Um, greenhouse. 
The greenhouse is a four and a four because of cost, and you can only have so many things every year that you want. Uh, I am a big believer in this saying. You can have anything you want within reason. If you want a new car, you can have a new car. It doesn't mean you can get a Maserati, but you can get a new car if you want a new car. Um, and if you want a new, if you want a new boat this year, you can get a new boat. You can figure out how to do it. But you can't get everything you want. So you have to pick and choose. Dorothy really wants to remodel the kitchen, and I do too. I get so frustrated in our kitchen. It doesn't function well. It doesn't flow well. I love to cook. It's a big part of where we live our lives when we're indoors. Everything could be so much better, uh, but it's significant cost to redo our kitchen uh, and redo it in a way that we're going to really love it and, and make the best we can of the space we have and all of that. So, you know, looking at another three to $4,000 to go into a greenhouse, probably not happening this year, maybe in the fall. So it gets... It, it goes on the bottom of the priority list and fairly high on the expense list. Um, the next one is continue to reduce chickens and expand ducks, uh, which I've been talking about a lot, but I think that's more involved than you might think. There's a very strategic way this has to be done. So my ducks are supposed to be out in my uh, living room right now for their first two weeks of life indoors, quacking and playing around and making a mess out of their brooders. They're not. They're in eggs in California. Yep, because Metzer called me and said, you know, we just didn't have a good hatch this run, and uh, we can't send you your birds. So you can either get them next week, which now, you know, is going to be like Tuesday next week because Monday's a holiday, and uh, or we can uh, wait till February and give you what you wanted. I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, next week you can have all of the white layers. If you want half goldens and half whites, you have to wait till February. And I immediately said, just give me the white ones. Because the color's not that important to me, egg production is. Right? So she's like, fine, we'll do that. So they're sending me my, my ducks. Now, why is that even an issue, a week? Well, I'm looking at 20 to 22 weeks before I start getting real egg production out of these birds. That means that I just went from a week before June to June before I have duck eggs for my customers that we're building this customer base based on. I want to continue building the market through this spring. It's a great time to build a market. I need something to sell them. I can sell them chicken eggs and sell them duck eggs as they're available and at least build that market. So I have to, to time cutting the chickens with increasing the ducks. On the other side of it, since I've never gotten around to paddocking that area over there where the chickens are, that one acre they're on, they're hammering it too much. They're really hitting it too hard. So I have to start deciding at some point, maybe I just need to start seeing the chicken population plummet. Uh, so that that area can have, you know, because when it recovers, it's going to blow up. Uh, it's had uh, uh, 17 cubic feet or more uh, cart, probably two 17 cubic feet carts of uh, horse manure and hay dumped on it every week for the last six months from the neighbor. And the chickens have done a lot of good work breaking that stuff up. But I'm of the opinion now that I may have to get down to a population of chickens of, you know, 15 to 20 really, really quick. As the ducks come up, I really don't have this, because we didn't plan on having a duck flock the size we're going to have now. I have drakes I have to cull, uh, just because I, you know, they they only do so much good. Um, and I have drakes that, you know, are, I have some runner drakes, and I really don't have any intention of ever pro propagating their genetics, because they're just not a big carcass and all. So I have to kill ducks that are smaller than I'd like to, because uh, their, their drakes are not giving me eggs. All they're doing is eating, and I don't want their genetics. They have to go. And I have to th balance how I home this, this additional new ducks, because really what I'm going to want to do is kind of change the ducks around and keep them where the chickens are now. 
and move them out of that smaller coop. Well, ducks are a creature of habit. This is going to take a little bit of work. I mean, we're going to have to feed them a bunch of really num-num-nummies uh, and cage them in to an area they don't want to be, which is like the chicken-goat pen area, uh, for a couple days to home them to a new house. Because they're going to constantly want to go back to that other house. So we have to decide, what does that building become now? Do we have two flocks of ducks? And that's that's probably most likely that we house two groups of ducks because we're going to have a we're probably going to have more ducks than even we have planned now. Like we'll probably do another run of of dedicated layers with a few drakes later this year as well. We'll probably get up to um, I'd like to get up to 70 to 100 layers. Because I know now I can develop the market and I know the land will support that and so that's actually a very complicated moving thing. And that goes almost to a totally different category. You could almost take that one out of your list and put it on its own list. Going to happen. Things that just are going to happen. And you have to manage it more than make it happen. The birds are ordered. They're coming. I got to do it. But then that gives me a whole list of tasks. Like improving an area or predator proofing an area or what have you. And, and getting set up for, for the, this, this to, to occur. And those things all become very, very high priority things. Birds are coming, you gotta have housing for them. If it ain't there yet or it needs to be improved, you gotta do it now. So the, that's one of more of those things that begats other things for the list. Um, the next one is set up a nine mile farm storefront. A little building that's designed as a store for Dorothy to expand this business because there's so many other things we want to do. She wants to start doing uh, candles, and we have some other things. We want to start doing plants and what have you. And then we have a question, though. Do we really want to do that? Do we really want the expense of a building? We could move this 8x8 duck shed, and it could be the storefront. Then we got to get at least electricity to it because I know me and I know my wife, and we ain't going without air conditioning in a storefront. It might be kept pretty warm, but when you're out there with customers or whatever, you're going to kick that thing up. So you're not going to do that with solar power. Um, we'd want to move at least one of the refrigerators out to it probably to store the eggs in. We have plenty of cooler space for eggs right now. It's all in the garage. It's, it's, it's one of those things we really have to think about the long-term management. Because we could very easily use our second gate entrance. We could open that up to people, let people come in on their own. We could fence off a small area. We could put the storefront up there that keeps the birds out of the area unless we decide we want them there. Actually, we wouldn't even have to let people open the gate. There's a lot of parking area there. One or two cars parked outside the gate there. They're off the road, easy to back out, much safer than our main gate for that purpose. We could put a small walk-through gate, set that little storefront up there, have it separated from the, the house, lot going for it, some things going against it, like expense. Right now, people come to the house, they come in, we greet them, they get to see the farm, Uh, we go in the garage, they get to see all our stuff, and we get them their eggs, and they like the experience. But it's people coming to your place kind of in your space, and it's not like you're letting them in your space. It's like they have to be there because it's the only option. And the other thing is they bring their kids. Now i got a hyperactive pit bull pointer mix. He's not going to hurt the kids, but he scares the kids. He jumps on the kids. Sometimes he doesn't like adults. He barks at them in a threatening manner. He'll run around them and act like he's going to bite them. Then they're afraid, even though I know he's not going to. They don't know he's not going to. Who knows if they react a certain way. The dog can snap at him. Now i got a liability. i got somebody want to put my dog down, what have you. There's a lot of case to make this storefront. Plus, if we're going to expand what we're offering, 
you know, how do we do that? Do we do put that in the garage and have people come in? And maybe we do. That's the other. Maybe we do. The nice thing about that would be it wouldn't be highly visible to the man. So we have a huge thing that we have to think about here with that. So that goes into like another group of lists. I don't know. Do we do this or do we not? So we have to take that one off the reservation, so to speak, as well. Um, a definite thing that really needs to happen is I need to set up a dedicated workshop. I have these two big, beautiful outbuildings. One's about 1,500 square feet and one's about 850 square feet. And I have tools all over the place. I'm always misplacing things. When I need to do something, I use one of my picnic tables as a workbench or back of my tailgate of my truck or whatever. And I've always, I've never had a space like I do now. So I've always worked that way. And I think when you become a creature of habit, it's hard to change. But I need to build a dedicated workbench, set up my chop saw, my table saw, all my equipment, drawers to put all my tools in, pegboards. I need to do that. And um, it's which building we do it in. There's ups and downs of both. And, uh, you know, what gets added. But I think that's a very high priority because a lot of other things I want to build, this will make easier. And, you know, building a – I don't have to build the perfect workbench. All I have to do is build a workbench. It can become perfect later. Uh, so it's not going to cost much money. It's easy to do. The space is available. It's very, very high priority. Um, we have to plan our spring propagation and planning goals. What do we want to propagate this year? Of what we propagate, what are we going to plant here? What are we going to sell locally? What am I maybe going to send to West Virginia in the fall uh, or to this, this, this client that we're going to have in Arkansas this year uh, to plant? What might I give away in workshops? You know, well, probably this year, if you come to a fall workshop anyway, you're probably leaving with some plants if you want them. Because I can produce 10,000 plants in one bed. I'm putting two beds in. What's that tell you? So... We have to plan that, but what are we going to propagate, and what are we propagating for our own use versus off-site use? Um, I'm going to build a, a comfrey propagation bed just because all the infrastructure is there now. So this is probably going to be a 4x4 or 4x8 bed planted intensely with comfrey, deeper than the other beds to build deep roots. I can tie it right into the existing irrigation that we put in, and it just makes sense to just propagate the ass out of comfrey root. And uh, there's such a demand for it. It's such a wonderful plant. There's pretty much nowhere I don't want some of it growing around here. Um, it just makes sense to do. So that's gonna that's another one of those that's gonna happen. Just have to figure out the timing on it. Um, I have to figure out some sort of pen fencing solution for our porch. I like the ducks pretty much free ranging. I just see it as easier to do, and I can control their primary area of activity very easily by where their kiddie pools go. Where I put their kiddie pools, that's where they spend 70% of their time that day. So it's it's not really worth trying to build some kind of shifting paddock system. Um, given that I could do it with low fencing, if you could step stakes in the ground here easily, I would probably do it. But even that could be a pain in the ass. So I need to come up with something that looks nice, that creates like a nice little courtyard area out of my back porch, With a low fence, a couple feet tall, that keeps ducks out. Why? Because they keep shitting on my porch. And I don't like that. I don't think you would either. So it's trying to marry free range without porch poop. And uh, the geese are far worse about it, and they're going to be a self-correcting issue that you know we probably won't even talk about today. Um, next, mulch, 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 and mulch. I have so many areas that need to be mulched, it is insane. There's areas that I need to just mulch, and there's areas that I need to do something to and then mulch. 
And I need to prioritize that way. If it just needs to be mulch, I just need to get in the truck when I have a couple hours, go down, pick up a load of mulch, and put it on there. Because it's very easy to do, and it doesn't cost much money. Um, but mulch, 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 mulch. There's going to be so much mulch on this property this year that uh, maybe sometime by the end of next year we won't really have a problem putting a stake in the ground because we're going to build probably about, when you look at across the three acres, probably an acre of it will have enough mulch on it that will build a couple to three inches of topsoil this year. So mulching is on that list. Plan and get ready for the spring annual gardens. I am not a big annual gardener anymore like I used to be. I love perennials, but I did put in six nice beds last year. They have automated irrigation. They are ready to go. They're fenced so the ducks can't harass them. They're languishing through winter right now with late planted leaf crops and stuff like that. We'll get a little stuff out of them, but uh, we're going to plant tomatoes and squash and beans and stuff like that into them this year, peppers. Uh, they should do very well. That soil should be really ready to kick ass after we set everything up uh, this this summer with it. And we may even expand it a little bit. Um, but I'm going to put in some stuff probably in the next couple weeks. Uh, go get some, some materials, and I'm going to set it up so at least a couple of them can be covered like little greenhouses. Uh, so that will let us plant early. Um, it's close to power, so I even conceivably could get a thermocube. Stick a little heater underneath the, the thing, a uh, little electric heater, plug it into the shop right there, have it come on at 35, go off at 45, and I'm probably going to plant one bed like that all to tomatoes this year straight from seed. So I'll plant five or six tomato seeds each place I want a tomato, and I'll cull as we get later in the year, and I'll grow tomato from seed in spot, which should be kind of cool to do. And as long as my season is, I probably could do that without the season extension, but it'll just work out better that way. So we're going to do that, and then we'll polyculture under the tomatoes with different leaf crops and things like that. So that's on the list. On that note, I have to part, and it kind of see this is where the things start to tie together, is I want to develop a living fence around that garden space because putting stuff in the ground is hard here because of all the rock. Uh, a fence is difficult to do here. It takes a lot of work, uh, time, and or money to do it. Basically, a jackhammer is the way to get it done. And to jackhammer holes and then put your posts in. And then the upside is you got really sturdy fencing. Um, so what I did to shortcut the, the garden is I just got some you know low, uh, low chicken fence. And I got some of those cheap step-in fiberglass fencing poles that have a spike on the bottom. And I put them, you know, a couple inches in the ground, just two inches, where they won't stand up. But I did that inside cinder blocks. And then I filled the cinder blocks with concrete, sackcrete. And then I just moved the concrete block, and the thing goes a couple inches in the ground to stabilize it a little bit. And you're sitting there with about a 40-pound block. And then I set those up around the area I wanted to fence. And I just put that chicken wire on with zip ties. Works just fine. Doesn't look great. Works just fine. In fact, it doesn't look that bad, and it's in an area you don't see it that much, so it's not an eyesore, but it just doesn't look great long term. So my thought is to plant something around it, leaving space for a gate, and I can put in a nice little gate. I'm willing to jackhammer a couple holes for two gate posts that will become a living fence within two to three years, like a Belgian fence or something like that. So what do I do that with? I have a couple contenders for this. One would be Wolfberry. Um... And I think that would actually work really, really well. It's very adapted here. The other would be to just go in and plant about 200 uh, seed apples. 
uh, and Antidovoca kind of springs to mind because it would actually produce a usable fruit, though it may not do the best in this climate. So I'm kind of stuck with it at that point. So I know the wolfberry would be viable. Um, I could do it with just random seed app, apple seedlings. I just say whatever comes off it is toward the cider press, and that could happen as well. Um, if I want it to be really productive, once I get the frame of it, I could graft anything I wanted onto it with apples. So it's probably going to be apples because they'll grow fast. And again, you've got to think about to make this work, since the chickens are going to go away, and trust me, long term, other than maybe a small flock, maybe a small flock, that will, if it gets over the main fence and into this area, it's a dead chicken anyway. There will be either no chickens or like 10. I might keep 10 just for breaking up horse poop. I mean, that's just one thing they're really good at. And with a small flock, they're not going to hurt anything. You know, As long as they stay over in their area, they're fine. The ones that come across get cold. But it may just be that by fall there's not a chicken on this property. You know, it, it really may. And it may just make sense to do that. So that living fence only needs to be a couple feet high to keep ducks out as long as it's thick. So I could go, and this area's not that big, and every 12 inches, or every 6 inches, I could plant an Antivoa apple seed. And irrigating, it's going to be simple because the water's right there. Um... And in a year, you're talking, you know, two-foot-high trees, and you just start interweaving them, and in two years, that's probably going to be duck-proof, and, the, and the, old, the other fencing can come down and be repurposed somewhere else. So that's high priority because it's cheap and it's easy, and it won't take much time. All you got to do is stratify seed and put it in the ground at the right time of the year, turn the sprinklers on. But it's important that it goes on the list, and here's, here's why I'm including some things like this, even though it's not covering everything I have planned this year. It's important that you put something that you think about that way on your list. Like, this is so easy and so cheap, I'll just get it done. Because if you don't, you won't get it done. And the timing actually matters. Like, to do that, like, because you say, well, if it's that easy, Jack, why do you already do it? Because you don't plant apple seeds in the ground in September. You plant them in the ground about 60 to 70 days from right now. And if that's the case, they need to be in the refrigerator now to be stratified to go in the ground then. You could go put them in the ground right now. And if you lived in a northern climate, probably nothing wrong with that. Probably. But um, it may not stratify sufficiently in this climate. And you want to keep the moisture. And you want to make this a high, a high hit ratio. You put them on wet paper towels. You put them in a Ziploc bag. You label the date. You put them in there. You stick them in the refrigerator. When you start to see a little tip of root come out, you stick those suckers in the ground. Let nature do her work after that. And with seed, let's face it, I could plant them every two inches, and I might. I might damn well plant a seed every two inches. And I'll cull and cull and cull until everything comes out the way that I want it to. And that way if something dies or a bird pulls it out of the ground because it can stick its head through, I'm good to go. Because I'll do them just inside this fence. Just inside. Easy enough. And if I decide I want them to be a little bit bigger since the fencing's so temporary, I can just splice in a piece of fencing and make it bigger. Because I might expand that whole area. I haven't decided yet this year. Um, next on my list, ponds. Ponds are in the four category right now because uh, I'm talking about in-the-ground ponds. I, I'm still at, is it really possible or is it worth the expense? I'm sure it can be done, but is it worth it? I have one spot that I'm pretty sure I'm just going to rent an excavator for a week, have them deliver it, and just tear the shit out of it. I'll just tear the shit out of it, separate the rock out of it, 
It's already halfway there. And then spend the money on bet night and line at one spot so I'll have one pond. It'll be probably about a tenth of an acre. It's in the lowest part of the property, which isn't the best place to hold water. But I'm never going to have that kind of water-holding ability on any high spot on this land. It's just not possible. It's just not. But that would be one good little pond for the ducks, and it would help them start orienting to a new area that I want them to spend some time in and break that habit. Because when they see that water, man, because it, it does fill up occasionally on a heavy rain uh, for a day or two, and, man, they love it when that's going on. So... I might kind of work on that area. And I have another area. I'd love to do a pond, but I'm going to have to bring in a lot of dirt. And it's a kind of thing where I could get a dump truck in there, but I'm not doing it. So it would all be manual with a pickup truck. And it would cost quite a bit of money to bring in enough dirt. And there's going to be a lot of rock to come out. And you're going to end up with about a 5,000-gallon pond. And you're going to end up spending a lot of, not really a lot of effort, but... There's going to be significant periods of time where you have to treat it like a swimming pool, which means putting a garden hose in it and filling it up with well water. It's just not going to, it's going to be above grade to make it, like a above grade earth tank to make it work. Um, it's the only way it's going to work. But it really might be worth doing. Gentle slope, ducks in and out, another great place for water for them. Um, especially this time of year, I could see that it would be really valuable because even when it freezes, I can go out with a sledgehammer and bust the water off the top. I'm not out there trying to fill kiddie pools in the freezing temperatures and whatever. And it would be really easy to put it where I want to, to set it up so that with one turn of a, of a, of a valve, I could drain part or all of it straight into the topsoil in the food forest system and have a constant fertigation uh, uh, going on. And if I wanted to put the water further downgrade to one of the other swales, I could do that easily with a temporary hose. So, I it's one of those things like, I should probably wait till summer and do it, but then it's going to be hot and I'm not going to want to do it. But there'll be so many other things that will already be done by then. I could just do a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit until it is the right thing. And I think it's probably worth doing. So I could rent the excavator, do the lower pond, bring the excavator up to this other area, do as much digging as possible, use the excavator to sort out as much rock as possible, build the banks, and then bring in fill dirt to finish the project. I could also trench the uh, the exit pipe down. So that's probably, probably going to happen this year. Uh, we might even do a workshop. That might be the thing to do the spring workshop around. Because uh, what would be cool about that is if we did that, and if we could do a workshop where it doesn't freaking rain, then we could actually, like we did with another workshop, have students learn to use an excavator. I think it's an incredibly valuable skill to be able to operate an excavator. It doesn't take that long to learn. And the area we're doing the lower pond, and we could just dig the shit out of that and then clean it all up when we're done. So everybody could get some time on the excavator that came to that workshop that wanted to anyway. And then we could dig the other one put in the lines. We could bring in dirt. We might be able to knock those two ponds out in three days if we did it as a workshop. So right now I'm trying to talk myself into that. If you would want to come to that kind of a workshop, let me know. If I know there's demand for it, it moves up the chain, right? Um, next, um, I need a fence in the garden ponds, and that needs to happen right away. The ducks are making me miserable. Um, 
And it's not because they're getting in the garden ponds. These are my two stock tank garden ponds. They occasionally get in one. It's not that big a deal. They don't get in there that often. It's the constant walking up and down, walking up and down and drinking out of them. Those web feet are soft on the land and set when it's dirt and it's constant, they compact it. So they need to not be going up there. That's like an attractive nuisance right now. That's easy. That's cheap. It's one of those things that as soon as I get some time, I'm going to do it. But that's why it has to go on the list and I have to like start scheduling days to do work. And that's just something that has to start happening as we move into times when it's easier to do work. Um, the next is I need to extend the planting areas in the food forest and the urban garden. That goes right in with the irrigation. So it's, it's almost... It's almost one and the other at the same time, but it's really not. The irrigation goes in, then the extension happens. So those, those that's my list for you to go through, you know, all this stuff with you guys today, and there's probably more. And then, you know, at the end, what I have today for wrapping up is, can I get this all done? Who knows? That's why we start our planning now. So what has to happen is all the planning gets done, and the days available to do work get done, and what can be consolidated into a workshop get done. And what needs to be done for the business gets done. And all of those things you start to realize on like, you know, whether, even if you don't run out of monetary budget, because most of this stuff's not expensive here. Uh, the only thing that's really expensive on my list is the greenhouse, which is why it's out probably for, it might do it in the fall. You know, we could do a greenhouse workshop in the fall. That would be great. How to set up a greenhouse for real production. We might even have, uh, it basically built. And then the workshop's more about setting it up, the automation systems, and then we'll have the nursery running on the other side. I mean, it could be really, really a cool workshop. So maybe we can do it then, but it's, it's, it's punted, you know, past summer. We, we know that. We, we just accepted that. So other things get punted based on this prioritization list. So the things that are most critical, most necessary, or most desired get done. And what happens if you don't take the approach that I've gone through with you today, That list sounds like a haphazard nightmare. And the way it's there, I didn't try to prioritize that list at all. I just banged it out the way I'm telling you to write it down in a, a, a paper or put it in your smartphone so that you could see it that way. But if you take it and you put it through that rating system, desirability, necessity, expense. And like I said, I think it really makes sense to go ahead and add a timesheet a column to your timesheet there, uh, or a column to your worksheet there for time. What is your estimated days budgeted? Because here's what happens. You look at a project, doesn't cost that much in materials. Costs a lot in time. You look at finding a contractor that can do all or the majority of the work, you get a price on it. That price is $800. And you say to yourself, I do not have the time to get this done this year. I do have $800. That project then, or parts of it, can be turned over to another individual. And it might be worth the financial investment if the other factors work themselves out. You can't get your arms around homesteading without taking that prioritization approach. You end up feeling like the guy with the plates that's running around trying to keep them all spinning, and sooner or later they start falling. And once one falls, it's not long before they're all on the ground and you're just like, I quit this year. That's what happens to a lot of homesteaders. It doesn't have to. It is simple. Start the planning process now. As I started out in the beginning, I mean, really, you, you got to look at it this way. This is a time to reflect on the past, plan for the future, make a list of everything you want to do, and a cost estimate for the same. Look at your list, set the priorities of wants, needs, and expense, 
Use something like Excel to, to make sorting these stuffs out e easier and start going through your considerations. Your last frost dates, what you want to plant, when the heat becomes a problem, when's the best time to get something done, when's the worst time to get something done, and, and justify your list against that. And all of a sudden you'll figure out, no, I can't do everything, but I can do these things. So you do those. And that means that when you get into your next year, you've got another list of things, and now a lot of those things that you couldn't get done the year before They're properly timed to go in, and they become the ones. You find that your, your threes and fours that don't get done this year become next year's ones and twos. And if they don't, then you start really evaluating, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do this? Let me say something on fencing. Joel Salant must have said a hundred times at Permaculture Voices last year, never put in a permanent fence until you've used temporary fencing in that exact area for three years. If you've had a temporary fence there for three years and you still want a fence there, it might be worth spending the money to put a permanent fence in. There's some real wisdom that can come from that type of thinking. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.